Hi, everybody. This is Chris Carter from the Bankhead Theater. And as we get ready for our upcoming 22-23 season, we're going to be interviewing a series of artists who are coming to perform for this season. And today, I'm very excited to be talking to Chris Brubeck, uh, who I share a first name with, which is really makes it fun. Uh, <laughs> Chris, th thanks for being here. I really appreciate your time. Uh, yeah. Chris is going to be performing with the uh, Brubeck Brothers Quartet on September 21st, Wednesday on at 7.30 p.m. And you can get tickets at livermorearts.org. And Chris, before I ask you any questions, I'm gonna read a quick snippet from one of your bios that I found online, just so people can get a little bit of an idea of your background. Uh, Grammy-nominated composer Chris Brubeck continues to distinguish himself as a creative force and multifaceted performer on fretless bass, bass trombone, and piano. An award-winning writer, he has clearly tuned into the pulse of contemporary music. The respected music critic for the Chicago Tribune, John Von Rhine, calls Chris a composer with a real flair for lyrical melody, a 21st century Leonard Bernstein. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. And, I, yeah. <laughs> and you know, uh, you're not just, uh, you know, you're coming, It's the Brubeck Brothers Quartet is more of a jazz uh, group. But you also have symphonic background as well. And when I this morning I was actually listening to a concerto for bass, trombone, and orchestra, and uh, I was I was pretty impressed. And I have to ask you before we even start, because as I was reading your bio, it sounds like you're you have a uh, you're a, comp a symphonic composer. So symphony or jazz? Do you have a preference or or a little bit of both? Or how do you uh, what do you like the best? Well, actually, what I like the best is what I do, which is both, because um, there's they contrast each other in a in a very nice way. Like as a um, as a as a composer, you know, it takes uh, a lot of creativity and in, in the first place. In fact, I have to give you a Stravinsky quote, which sort of explains everything. Stravinsky said that um, composition is really um, improvisation that is is captured and worked on. I'm, I'm mm. sort of screwing the, the quote up, but uh, the, the point is as an improviser, the same part of my mind that's creative enough to make up a phrase is the same as the same part of me that's a composer that makes up a phrase. But as a composer, I have to say, I like that. Now I'm gonna capture it. Now I have to develop it. I have to orchestrate it up and down. I've got to elongate it. I got to do all these things. And it takes a ton of hard work. And the ironic thing is that it's very satisfying. Like if I hear the Boston Symphony Orchestra play something that I wrote, you go, oh my God, I feel like a demigod, the power of the strings, awesome. the brass section. But I can have the same thrilling feeling just playing with the Brubeck Brothers Quartet when I didn't spend any time writing anything down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you just so, improvise as you go. Which is... Yeah, yeah, but the but the the creative spark is the same, and like yeah. there's tons of great jazz musicians that I would say would be great composers because they're composing on the spot all the time. Mm -hmm. However, do they have the discipline and the um, sort of masochistic streak of sitting down for two months and writing this all down? And is that's... it that painful? It can't be. It's pretty painful. Really. Yeah, because it's at first when I first started composing, I thought it's like oh, it's just a matter of thinking of the music. But unfortunately, um, I was taught, uh, not formally, but informally, but there was a very famous conductor named Eric Kunzel from the Cincinnati Pops, who far exceeded the Boston Pops in terms of record sales. He said, every note in the score has to have an articulation 
meaning you're telling the player, is it a short note? Is it a long note? Is it a slurred note? And a dynamic. So you have three or four layers of information per note for 30 instruments. You know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of bits of information wow. that dutifully has to put in. So uh, uh, I'm sure your average listener says, blah, 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 enough already. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, well, that's a little bit you, about being a composer. When you compose, do you compose primarily from off the piano or what, what's your kind of creative process? Well, that's a good question, Chris. And for me, uh, I've been doing it before there was something called Finale, which is a program which is like a musical typewriter. Uh, and so the beautiful thing about that is like, if I hear like a flute solo in my mind, I can write that flute solo on a staff I create in a, in a score I create that is a flute solo and I can play it back. And it is literally a digital flute player living inside my computer. Um, and it sounds just like a flute. I mean, it's not like a Donkey Kong, you know, Mario Brothers sounding electronic piece of crap. It's literally a flute player who's digitally playing my music. And wow. so that's how the way I compose, which is different from a lot of people, is I really do things because I think they sound good. I don't have any kind of Schoenberg theory I'm following, whatever. And I think also because I'm a performer, um, like whatever that quote said referred to my my melodic writing or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm 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 not trying to prove a point by some kind of crazy musical theory. I'm trying to write music that I would enjoy hearing. And you know, Bernstein's music is eminently enjoyable. And thank God he and Copeland existed, or classical music would have alienated everyone. Yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of where it was going. But uh, so the finale thing is that I I can always hear what I'm writing, and then I have a meeting with the conductor. Then I've got a, a, a finale. Uh, demo of things all the right tempos everything's in tune and that helps me immensely and that's how that's how i work personally a lot of people don't work that way but that's the way i roll you got it what, which instrument was your first instrument that you learned about actually piano because my father um he wanted me to learn how to play piano not because he wanted me to become a great pianist in fact, I didn't even want to even attempt piano because I knew that he was a great pianist. Like even as a five-year-old, I think like, hmm, he's got this sewn up. I don't want to compete with him. Yeah. Uh, but he wanted me to be able to read treble clef and bass clef and understand notation. So I'd have the basic tools of language because he said, someday, little Christopher, you might want to be a composer and I want you to have the skills. And he was also compensating for the fact that my father was a brilliant musician, but he had problems with his eyesight and i think his eyes were so bad at first uh, that he probably had add or something like that which they didn't call it that in the 19 mid 1920s and so he learned to be a composer you know much later in his life and he became a great jazz musician because he had to develop these amazing ear skills i see which he had tremendous ears I didn't know that about your dad. Well, let's talk about your dad a little bit. Um, Dave Brobeck uh, was your father. Uh, I think he would have been 102 maybe this year. Yeah, yeah, because 2020 was his centennial. Yeah, and you know, I, I read that he and your mother were married for 70 years. Yeah. Uh, sounds like a pretty stable guy, which for um, you know, an incredibly successful jazz musician, that's not always the case. Uh, but so that's, <laughs> It's often not the case. Yeah, I know. It's kind of fascinating that he was able to do all that and seemed to, like he had it all, uh, had it put together pretty well. He was able to keep a marriage together and didn't 
no, nothing scandalous seemed to happen. And uh, was he, he seemed like he was a pretty good father to you. And you had several siblings as well, right? Right. There were six kids in all. Yeah. And uh, four of us turned out to be professional musicians. And we've all played with my dad. And at one point, uh, yeah. my brother, Dan, the drummer, who's going to be in this concert coming up, and my brother, Darius, who did turn out to be, he started as a trumpet player, ended up being a piano player. Mm -hmm. and, and myself and my father, we had a group that toured the world uh, as the, uh, the new Brubeck Quartet that was in the early 70s. We recorded and, and did that kind of thing. And then my youngest brother, Matthew, is a great cellist. And um, he lives in Toronto now, but he used to live in Berkeley and was in the Berkeley Symphony and did a lot of touring with a lot of pop acts and things like that. And, we, and we've, so we've all played together and we, we had a great time. We learned a lot from our father. On the other hand, I got to say, and I'm not saying this out of pity, but just out of facts, you know, people say, did your father teach you to play piano? Well, he was gone all the time because he was yeah. on tour all the time. So he had to find a piano teacher for me that he thought would be good and could, you know, the consistency of a lesson time and, you know, once a week and everything. Uh, so we had to ha have that. Uh, but we learned a lot from him just by osmosis. I played thousands of concerts with him and I, I learned a lot that way. And as a matter of fact, a couple nights ago, I had a wonderful dream. You know, sometimes you have a dream where it's more than the dream. It's like more intense. It's like a visitation or something. But I dreamt I was in some concert hall and I was listening to my, to my dad play. Oh. It put a huge grin on my face. I'm sure I was smiling in my sleep because I've heard him so much that that part of my brain created a new concert of Dave playing his butt off. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the joy of hearing it. You know? Did you wake up and try and play it right away? <laughs> no, I didn't. I knew that was hopeless. He's <laughs> 50 times a piano player I am but um you know but it was just the same yeah. uh, pure lifting my heart and enjoy my my dad it was so funny as as in his career he got to this point it was so much fun to play with him he'd walk on stage and get a standing ovation for yeah. about five minutes and then uh, he would just play so joyfully and that's what people wanted to come to see like the comment over and over would be like oh my god he walked so slowly to get to the piano. We thought, uh-oh, maybe I shouldn't have gone to see him one more time. Maybe he's just too damn old, you know? And then, uh, as Herbie Hancock said, right before your eyes, he starts playing, and he starts losing 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and he has all this energy and technique and music. And uh, my father just loved playing old standards. Like, he, he loved to play on the sunny side of the street. He was a guy that wrote yeah. all the Turk and Henry and Swade and all this challenging music. But this, the innocent joy of a song like that uh, and, and sort of creating a happy vibe is what he, he came to, to want to do the most for his audiences. And, and everyone loved him for that. One of his, one of his most favorite things was um, Downbeat Magazine has a poll that's the most famous jazz magazine for the most popular jazz group, not the critics, but for the audiences to want to see. And Dave's group won that, you know, I might be off by a year or two. Let's say they won it in 1961 or something. But his group won it again in like 19 or 2003 or wow. something. <laughs> a 50 year span, you know, the same group. And the only person that was the same was him, you know, so he, he's yeah. doing something right, you know. What Well, what what is it about that music that just resonates generation after generation, you think? Um, you know, I'm not sure, like at this point, like when, when my brothers and I were playing with my father, 
um, there was this this show that went on the road. It was almost like a traveling musical circus. It was called Two Generations of Brubeck. And for example, my father did a record called uh, uh, Jazz at Oberlin. It was a pretty famous, well-reviewed record. So we would go back to Oberlin College and it would be on parents weekend. So the kids that were in college were more like my age. And they would say, oh, I don't like jazz so much. I like rock and roll. But I had creative rock and roll groups. So we'd play. And then my uh, father would appeal to the people that were his age, the parents of the kids in college. And so now I'm getting old enough that we're playing for kids of kids that were the kids then <laughs> who come to say, hey, my parents or my grandpa really loved your your music and, and i grew up hearing it and um there are you know they're 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 rarer but there are still kids i mean we run into kids all the time that that play jazz really great we just had a jazz camp up in tahoe called brubeck jazz summit and there were a lot of kids from california that were there and and, and there's still something a certain degree of the, of the population will hear jazz and go oh my god that's such intelligent music and there's so much freedom in it and I'm crazy enough. I'm going to spend the rest of my, rest of my life trying to play this stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's just beautiful that people feel that strongly about it when they discover it. Well, we have um, a program here called the High School All-Star Jazz Program, East Bay High School All-Stars. Oh, and, great. Um, these are students, high school students from around the East Bay. They have to try out for it. It's run by um, uh, a musician. His name's Spencer Sussman, and he, he's a a pretty proficient uh, jazz artist who's toured around the world and he's come back to run this program for us. And it's competitive. And the idea is to give them an opportunity to experience what it's like to be a professional musician and especially in the jazz world. And uh, we we give them uh, gigs and we, we book shows for them and they perform on our stage and other stages. And it's, it's really a great program. And I, I think you're right, it is, um, there's something about it that uh, is, it, it speaks to your mind in a different way. Um, I remember I had a professor tell me once when I, about listening to jazz music is to imagine somebody kind of poking you when you least expect it. And, you know, there's just something about it that really gets, makes you think and move in a differently, which it sparks your brain. So I, I, I love it too. So. Oh, that's, that's great. And, and, you know, I, I want to say something to, uh, too, is that when you're talking about my parents' long marriage, um, there's a lot of things about my mother that the, the general world doesn't know. But um, she's the one that invented the idea of doing jazz concerts at colleges. And oh. it's, she was tired of my dad coming home from, from legendary jazz clubs like the Black Hawk, you know, like at three in the morning and smelled like a cigarette because everyone smoked in those days because doctors used to have full page ads about smoking was good for your health. Keep that in mind. You know, Life <laughs> Magazine. Yeah. Was, yeah, you can always trust those corporations to tell you <laughs> the truth, you know? Yeah. So um, anyhow, she thought like, man, I don't want you, why can't you be viewed as legitimately as a string quartet? Uh, the kind of dialogue you have in your group with Paul Desmond, et cetera. Uh, it's, it's a high level of music and, and you shouldn't have to be competing with cigarette smoking and people trying to pick up their dates and, and wearing blenders, making, you know, pina coladas or, or whatever, you know? Yeah. And um, so she said, okay, where can I put you where there are people who are kind of more intelligent that would appreciate what's harder to understand about jazz. He went, aha, college. <laughs> There's already a filter system there. You know, the brighter, more motivated people are going to college and they'll probably like jazz. So she 
she wrote to all these places and said, please uh, consider having my father, my uh, husband come in and play. And the, one of the earliest records he did was Jazz Goes to College, Jazz Goes to Junior College, opening up that that market. And yeah. so besides being a lyricist, that's one of her great contributions to just the general field of jazz. Yeah, well, my, my dad went to college in the early 60s and I was telling him about the Brubeck Brothers Quartet coming and he was very excited. And he said, you know, he reminded me that's pretty much all he listened to when he was that age. You know, to, uh, so I, I think your dad probably had a big influence on that generation. So, yeah, and uh, it's amazing because we've been fortunate enough to to meet some pretty heavy people that tell me the same story as people that aren't that heavy, which is including like Bill Clinton and mm -hmm. Barack Obama, you know, and uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal recently, you know, like this is the music that really turned them on. And um, I have, you know, one theory about, you know, Take Five becoming such a big hit, um, which is, you know, it it's, doesn't have a ton of chord changes. It's almost over like an E-flat pedal and it's very modal. And it, that was at the same time that Indian music was starting to, to come mm -hmm. in through the American consciousness. And I don't think the average person would tie those things together. But but I think somehow that was a, it was in five, which was weird. It didn't have a ton of chord changes. And it had that thing going on. So I, I think that was all in the ethos and all sort of came together for that song to take off. Yeah. And I, I remember when I was a kid, people sometimes will ask me like, well, when did you get really get it in your head that your father was really a big deal? And I remember very specifically, he was doing a concert in New Jersey and I was sitting in a diner and you know, the kinds of diners when you were a kid where there's one in each booth and there's have these like metal menus that you can flip the pages. Yeah. And I'm sitting there, it's like, you know, Rolling Stone, Satisfaction, you know, Beatles, uh, you know, She Loves You, or Beach Boys, uh, whatever. And then it was like, Dave Brubeck Quartet, take five. I'm going, oh my God, my dad made the jukebox. He He's in the really jukebox. It's significant. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> were, well, were you ever, you know, because of, you became a, you grew up to be a professional musician, was there anything else you wanted to do? Or were you kind of, Sometimes when you have a successful parent, it's a little bit uh, of a challenge to follow in their footsteps. But was your, did you always want to be a musician? Was there anything else you wanted to, to try out? Um, no, it was pretty much always music. I mean, I just had a fantasy. Like when I was in third grade, I loved watching Willie Mays and the San Francisco Giants and, you know, uh, or, you know, some sort of fantasy about basketball. But in ninth grade, I was the last kid cut from the freshman basketball team. And when that happened, I was bummed out. And I said to my dad, hey, I, I know there's this really cool music school. Can I go there instead since I didn't make the basketball team? And I was very lucky to be thrown in with all these super talented high school kids that went on to, to Juilliard and they became very famous in the classical world. And um, so my big thing that was different is that I knew my dad had had uh, you know jazz all sewn up as I I wanted to have very and did have very creative rock and roll groups that were you know you know very, very different. One group was called Sky King. It was very funky. I remember Chicago sometimes called us Thinking Man's Funk, and I <laughs> I like that idea. And uh, so I did that till the mid seventies, and then uh, after we put out our third album, it's like we ran into some shenanigans with Columbia Records and half the band quit music and we're bummed out. My dad said, hey, Chris, man, why don't you start playing jazz with me? You got the chops. Yeah. So, so I did that. At that point in my life, I was ready to do that, having paid all the dues 
you know, you got two vans, you're going on the road, you don't have enough money for a gig, so you sleep at a rest area on the on the side of the highway. You know, I'd done all that stuff for a few years. I was like, okay, I'll do the better gigs now. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> yeah, ready. twist my arm. Um, that sounds great. You're you are a Bay Area guy. You mentioned the San Francisco Giants. Your your family has roots in the East Bay. Is that right? Absolutely. My dad was born in Concord, and um, and his parents uh, had something to do with Concord too. But when he was very young, they moved out of Concord, and God knows how big that was in 1930. You know, maybe it was a town of 5,000 people or something. I don't know. But they moved to a minuscule town called Ione. Mm -hmm. And uh, our grandfather, Pete, Grandpa Pete, was a real cowboy, like a rodeo champion roper from the Salinas Rodeo, you know, which it's not for sissies. You got to be the real deal to compete down there. And he was hired to manage a 40,000 acre ranch. And if you ever go up one of the big highway, highways, you still see Grant Line Road as an exit. That was the edge of that ranch. Wow. Yeah, that he managed. So I always kid with my dad, you know, I said, hey, man, you you grew up eating organic beef whenever you wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-World War II and the chemical revolution, you know, so... Yeah, he, he and my two my two uncles were all my grandpa Pete wanted them to do was be cowboys. And my father literally was a cowboy. I have footage of him roping and steering and branding and all that. But he had this musical talent. And uh, eventually that that outdid the cowboy. I didn't deny it. Oh, OK, that's a great story. Um, well, let's talk. Tell me a little bit about the Brubeck Brothers Quartet and what we can expect uh, so you just you mentioned your brother uh, Dan is uh, performing with you. Uh, yeah. Who are the other musicians in the group? The other musicians in the group are Mike D'Amico, who's a great jazz guitarist. Yeah, tons of chops. And Dan and Mike have been playing together for damn near uh, 35 years because they were in a band before this called the Dolphins that did three records and toured the world. And they were more of a fusion band. But Dan's uh, fusion sort of became less popular probably about 25 years ago. And my brother said, well, maybe we should stop doing fusion and do more straight ahead. And then they asked me if I would like to play bass with them. I said, sure. Yeah, I started. And then the newest member of the group has only been in the band 20 years. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and his name is Chuck Lamb and he's a great pianist. And in the seventies, he had a group called Dry Jack, which Rolling Stone magazine called one of the early great fusion groups. But he, you know, all of us have that background where we played fusion, we played funk, we played rock, but we all love straight ahead jazz. And when we play quote unquote straight ahead jazz, all those other elements, you know, sneak in a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, it, it's basically, it's it's jazz. It's not far out jazz. It's not Dixieland jazz. You yeah. know, it's, it's uh, jazz that's roaring right up the middle. And, and fortunately we've put out CDs that did really well in the top 10 of national airplay. So I, I know that, you know, it's not my total fantasy that we are good or know what we're doing. Or at least there's a lot of radio stations that support my fantasy that we're good. We know what we're <laughs> so we can expect a good show. Uh, so uh, uh, last question, you know, I, I, I'm not, a, I, I listen to jazz. I listen to lots of different types of music. Um, I, I'm probably more of a, a casual jazz fan, but I, I do listen pretty regularly. Uh, to someone who's just getting into jazz, what advice would you have for them? And, and what would you kind of tell them to listen for if they were to come for, come to this performance? Uh-huh. Well, um, 
it's interesting because a lot of people, as I mentioned before, uh, will say your father's music was like the gateway for me to discover jazz of, at all. You know, and then from there, maybe they started listening to Miles Davis or whatever and getting deeper down the trail to John Coltrane or Thelonious Monk or people like that. Uh, but my dad's music is pretty welcoming. And and when we do our concerts these days, especially because of my dad's centennial, we had big concerts planned all over the world um, oh, yeah. for like a Royal Albert Hall with a BBC orchestra and the Hollywood Bowl. And unfortunately, COVID wiped all that out. And I just say, well, we'll wait till the next centennial to celebrate it. But uh, <laughs> um, we've been doing a lot of Dave's music as part of that sort of centennial salute. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing the audience can expect uh, is to hear, you know, our, our interpretations of, of Dave's uh, timeless music. But um, in terms of what to listen for, is just to understand that jazz is a lot like, if you know what the classical term means, is like theme and variations, mm -hmm. um, where you know, you state the melody, like people say, well, how much of what you played is improvised? And you'll say, well, there's a structure and then we're making it up on top of that and we listen to each other and everything's changing all the time. So it's probably about 90%. And um, I really discovered that a lot of people actually don't believe that that could be true, that, that you can play so well that it sounds like it's rehearsed as a string quartet mm -hmm. where every note is written out, but it's actually just everyone being a really great musician and listening. Uh, and, and that's the thing that an audience can really feel is like, like I love classical music and I love hearing, you know, orchestra music, but when an audience witnesses people actually creating something in front of them, they can often feel that. And yeah. uh, I remember, I, I loved it. This little old lady came up to me after a concert. What she said, I love the way you boys played music. It was so fun. It was almost as if you were making it up as you went along. <laughs> <laughs> and so i thought that was great but rather than being condescending about it i thought you know that actually says something like you know like we're magicians from their point of view mm -hmm. like that so together it couldn't have possibly been that we just made it up yeah it had to have been rehearsed and so it was a great underhanded compliment <laughs> well, it, it might just be inside of you and you're just conjuring it somehow but uh <laughs> I, I i agree I, I think that's the one of one of the wonderful things about your style of music and um and by the way we, go ahead when we play in our concert i usually uh we usually have a tune where chuck literally makes something up that's never ever ever been played before like just okay i'm turning you loose chuck just do what you do because he's great i just totally yeah improvising whole cloth from, from zero. And my brother, Dan, is a really exciting drummer um, in terms of playing creative drum solos and odd time signatures. I would consider him to be one of the best in the world. And, you know, he's been doing it for 50 years, playing uh, drum solos on take five around the world. And it just boggles everyone's mind how he can play so polyrhythmically. And he has a lot of energy. It's sort of like if Keith Moon from The Who became a jazz drummer, yeah. you know, that kind of energy and and you know mike has all blues and jazz and bebop chops and i'm willing away in the fretless space so we have a real cohesive group with its own sound yeah. and i think that everyone's gonna gonna relate to that combination of uh having a good time and and playing uh, creatively and and my dad always said the audience is the fifth member of the group you know the energy we get with an audience i mean if they give us energy it comes right back and pretty soon you've you've created this beautiful little musical monster between the audience and, and the musicians it's great 
Well, great. What what a gift. And um, I was just thinking, because you mentioned Thelonious Monk, I didn't even realize this, but we've booked two second generation um, artists, this jazz artists, this uh, some, uh, season, because we have T.S. Monk uh, coming. Oh, great. A few weeks after you. <laughs> <laughs> Thelonious' well, son is going to be here as well. Oh, man. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, so we're we're very excited to have you come uh, to the Bankhead. I personally am really looking forward to it. And uh, I really appreciate your time today, Chris. Um, so Chris Brubeck with the uh, Brubeck Brothers Quartet coming to the Bankhead Theater on uh, September 21st. Uh, you can get tickets at LippermoreArts.org and uh, come for a great show. It's a, uh, If you've never been to the Bankhead Theater, Chris, uh, acoustically, it's a really great venue. I, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So thank you again, and thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Chris.